At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. All right, folks, you've been listening there to uh, Dr. Fauci and Jeff Zients, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, speaking at the White House on the news this morning that the CDC and FDA have called for a pause in using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of some rare cases of blood clotting. Let's bring in Meg Terrell to uh, give us some context and facts here. Uh, The facts are apparently, Meg, that there were adverse effects involving six women uh, who suffered uh, cerebral blood clots of some sort uh, out of 6.8 million uh, people who have been administered the J&J vaccine. What does this tell you? Yeah, Tyler, what it tells us is this is a very rare event, but the actions being taken by the FDA and the CDC today, as Dr. Fauci was underscoring, signal that they do think it is significant enough to let people know to look out for this. Things like shortness of breath, severe headache, any pain in the abdomen or the legs. Um, they are saying look out for that after three weeks after getting the shot. And the other message from Dr. Fauci is that this is a very rare event where you have this combination of a clot and low platelet count, and it needs to be treated differently than you typically treat blood clots. And so they're trying to get this message out there to doctors as well. If they see this kind of thing, even though it is so rare, after someone has had the J&J shot, they should know not to treat it uh, with heparin, which is the typical way you would treat a blood clot. And so that is the message from Dr. Fauci. This is extremely rare. They are being very cautious here, uh, trying to better understand the risk profile of the people who have these rare clots. And we will hear a lot more about that tomorrow from the CDC's outside committee of advisors. The other message we were hearing there in tandem was from Jeff Zients from the White House, um, who was saying this will not affect Americans' ability to get vaccinated on the same timeline. He was saying they've got plenty of supply from Moderna and from Pfizer. We know the companies have said they should deliver enough for 200 million people by the end of May um, and then by the end of July, enough for 300 million people. You're seeing here, Tyler, the number of shots that have been administered of each kind of vaccine. Uh, J&J, just about 7 million. And these very rare events, only six reported so far. Um, the, The emphasis being They're trying to be very careful here and to really understand the benefit risk. One of the things that occurs, obviously, uh, is that all of the patients who had these effects were female between 18 and 48. I'm sure they're looking right now is are there any commonalities uh, to these women's uh, health profiles, uh, the, the drugs, prescriptions they took or anything like that. But the one commonality that can't be disputed here is that. Uh, The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, as well as the AstraZeneca vaccine, which has been implicated with some blood clot uh, formation in the past, are are adenovirus platform vaccines, and the Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines are messenger RNA vaccines. Is it possible that that therein lies the difference and that we've not seen the blood clotting effects with the mRNA vaccine platform? 
Yeah, uh, it's not proven yet, but there is a, a thought that it could be this mechanism, these adenoviral vector vaccines. AstraZeneca uses that technology. It's a slightly different delivery mechanism uh, than the J&J vaccine, but both use um, that technology. And so there is a question, is this a class effect of the, mm-hmm. the vaccine technology? Some rare you know, immune reaction to this vaccine vector, they call it. Um, we don't know yet, but those mm-hmm. are the kinds of questions being asked. And certainly because this came up with AstraZeneca being in the same class, a lot of questions are yeah. that type. And, and I, I would just end, Meg, on the thought uh, which you started with, and that is this is an extremely rare event, uh, less than one in a million uh, based on the administered uh, doses of the J&J vaccine. And Dr. Fauci said, please don't let yourself have an adverse reaction out of anxiety because uh, of, of what we're reporting today. And, so, and it does sound, does it not, Meg, like this is possibly a short-term delay uh, in, in J&J's ability to manufacture and deliver this vaccine, right? Sounds like it might be a short-term delay. Absolutely. I, yeah, the, the hope, I mean, what we heard from regulators earlier is they hope this could be a few days that they would take to really analyze this and understand it and perhaps make some recommendations if they need to change anything about who should get the vaccine, what we have seen in Europe around the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is completely separate, but per, you know a similar looking profile of these blood clots, is that in the UK, they've recommended people under 30 get a different kind of vaccine because the risk benefit profile for COVID and these blood clots is different for them than an older person, for example. Yeah. And so all of that needs to be taken into consideration. And we will see that play out over the next few days and weeks from the FDA and CDC. All right. So stick around, Meg. We're going to talk a little bit now about the implications for uh, Johnson & Johnson and Pfizer and Moderna. Let's bring in Cantor Fitzgerald analyst Louise Chen, who tracks both J&J and Pfizer. Louise, you've heard what uh, Meg and I have just been talking about. Is there anything you would like to add here that would be specifically uh, referential to Johnson & Johnson, say? Yeah, I think what I would like to add here is that from the perspective of Johnson & Johnson and from in the perspective of the vaccine rollout, I don't think this should impact things. I mean, you heard Dr. Fauci say days and weeks potentially to resolve things. And if we follow the example that we saw with AstraZeneca's vaccine in the EU, they updated the label and then they continued the rollout and said, proceed with caution here. So I think those are the kind of things that I would think about here. And then in terms of J&J particularly, I think the thought would be four things that I would be thinking about. Will the headlines become a headwind for the vaccination effort? I think we answered that. I think probably not. Secondly, what other additional data could we see come out over the next couple of weeks? And then what does this mean for BLA, a full BLA filing for J&J's vaccine? And lastly, what does this mean for mRNA vaccines that Pfizer, BioNTech, Moderna have over the adenovirus platform that we see in J&J and AstraZeneca? Well, that's what we were just talking about with Meg. Uh, let's talk a little bit specifically about J&J and their manufacturing problems at that Baltimore facility uh, where there were problems that, that crept in there. Uh, is that, to your knowledge, the 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 main or the only place that they manufacture this vaccine? Uh, but why don't I ask uh, 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 you first, uh, Ms. Chen? Yeah, I'm actually not certain if that's the only place they manufacture that vaccine. Meg, do you uh, but know? But I do know that that facility has been in the headlines quite a yeah. bit. Yeah. Meg, do you know? Uh, well, we understand that for supplying the United States, they need that uh, facility to be authorized by the FDA mm-hmm. in order to release uh, many doses that they've already manufactured there and to supply the U.S. 
I also am with Louise where I don't know precisely if they have another yeah. facility in the U.S. making drug substance, but they were supplying the U.S. from a European facility and uh, up until they got this, the green light for this plant. And so they really need this plant to be brought on board in yeah. order to be able to supply at the numbers they had planned to here in the U.S. Louise, if I own Johnson & Johnson stock, should I own it today, hold it, sell it, what? Yeah, I think you should own it. I think this is not something that's insurmountable. I think this is something that's been done by the FDA and CDC to increase confidence in the American population about the vaccines. I I feel better as a citizen knowing that if there's any sort of issues, that the government will address it right away. So my view of it is I think that they'll probably be back online with the vaccine rollout in days or weeks, as Dr. Fauci said, with an updated label. Uh, And then the the only thing that needs to really be determined is that if certain people should be contraindicated in some of those high-risk groups. And that's my take. And Johnson Johnson is so much more than just the vaccine that it's putting out there. Well, it certainly is. And, and, and this is, this is uh, obviously a, a major global company. And the, and the global rollout of this vaccine was really an important part of it, uh, not just in the U.S. Meg, let me turn back to you on the question of, of vaccine hesitancy uh, that Louise was just referring to there. And that, the, that Jeff Zients and, and Dr. Fauci said, hey, you should look at this because the tripwire was tripped. This should reinforce your sense of security in getting a vaccine. True, or may there be people who say, doggone it, I was right, I should never have gotten it, or I won't ever get it, because they're having these problems. You know, I think there's a lot of fragmentation in the way people think about vaccines. We we dug into an issue around hesitancy last week, and speaking with folks, there are some people who are not going to want to get vaccines no matter what the information is. And we have been hearing from people today that this information, and we knew that the stories about AstraZeneca in Europe were the same. These are getting shared w- widely among anti-vaccine groups. Um, and there could be some hesitancy that then seeps over into the people who are kind of in the middle, who are saying, I'm going to wait and see. But I think the Louise makes a great point, and, and it's one Dr. Fauci is making too, that there is a reminder here that there are safety mechanisms in place to quickly act when there is a signal. And for some folks, if they look at it that way, it really is reassuring about our systems here. Louise, you follow Pfizer as well. Uh, what, what implication is there, if any, from the fact that the J&J vaccine is off the market, to, at least temporarily, What implication is there, if any, for Pfizer's success uh, as a stock and as the vaccine provider? Uh, So thanks for that question. I think for Pfizer, it doesn't really change anything for Pfizer in my mind. We like Pfizer. We think they've done a great job with the rollout. Um, They've said that by the end of the year, they'll get to about 2.5 billion doses. So if for any reason there's a longer pause than anticipated for J&J, I think they can step in here and fill those shoes. They said by the end of July, they'll be able to supply the 300 million contracted doses to the U.S. government. So I think everything is all set from that perspective. And they've also started to develop vaccines looking at cohorts of younger children and also a booster for variants. So I think it's all green lights here and, you know, positive uh, but doesn't really change anything for Pfizer. My Louise Chen uh, of Canterfield Show, thank you very much for being with us today. Meg Terrell, as always, great to see you. Thank you. Well, the market appears to be mostly shrugging off the pause in the J&J vaccine. The S&P 500 hitting another all-time high, and the Nasdaq less than 2% from its all-time highs. So can anything slow down this market? Uh, joining us now, Nancy Davis, Chief Investment Officer at Quadratic Capital Management, and Chris Zaccarelli, Chief Investment Officer at the Independent Advisor Alliance. Welcome to both of you. Glad to have you with us. Great to be here. 
Yeah, uh, thanks for having us. Nancy, you posed an interesting uh, question. Do you, in, in, my, in the note I have for you, do you believe what the stock market is telling us now, which is sunshine and rainbows? Uh, do you believe it? Well, it, it reminds me of uh, taking my kids to see the Lego movie. Do you remember the Lego movie mm-hmm. where uh, the theme song was constantly playing in the background? Everything is awesome. And I feel like that is what's going on right now in the equity markets. Um, it is rainbows and unicorns and everything seems awesome. I think the thing that investors need to be wary of is, is there um something that uh, that we're not aware of, something that's on the horizon, because it does seem like uh, pretty perfect right now with every day, new time high in equities, and everyone seems, uh, you know, very euphoric. Chris, let me get your, your reaction to what uh, Nancy just said, and, and, then, mm-hmm. and then extend it a little bit to any concerns that you have about uh, rising interest rates and the, the possibility of higher inflation. We got the, C, uh, the CPI numbers today. And they were 2.6% year over year. Well, I think it's a great observation that things look really, really good right now. It seems like a Goldilocks environment in terms of you've got the twin tailwinds of the Federal Reserve providing monetary stimulus. You've got the federal government providing fiscal stimulus. So there's a lot of impetus there for GDP growth. And if you look at consensus, they're saying anything from 6.2 to 6.5% GDP growth, which is really, really high. Meanwhile, inflation is staying relatively contained. You know, we saw some higher CPI prints uh, today, and we'll probably see some higher ones over the next couple of months. A lot of people have been talking about the base effects, which is a a fancy way of saying the year-over-year comparisons are going to be very easy because of what happened a year ago. Inflation was artificially depressed. It will easily clear that hurdle just as the economy reopens. But the real question, I guess, is, is going forward, you know, what to expect and so as long as GDP continues to do well and as long as we have that, that tailwind, then the market can continue to go higher. I think uh, the market definitely has a very optimistic lens on things. I think mm-hmm. the market is moving higher at, at a more slower pace, and that makes more sense. I think uh, the, the move higher is, is logical and it makes sense. Mm-hmm. The real concern I would have is that with inflation, if inflation proves out to be not transitory, if not only these easy year-over-year comparisons turn out to be higher than expected, but going forward we have higher than expected inflation, then that brings the Federal Reserve back into the game. And if the Fed starts raising rates, I think that's what you have to fear most about in terms of being an equity investor, because that yeah. typically leads to the next recession. Well, if you listen to uh, Chair Powell the other day uh, on our air and then on 60 Minutes, it doesn't look like there's any interest rate hikes uh, this year, at, at least by current uh, forecast. Uh, Nancy, ba- back to you. If if I buy your theory that, that everything is looking pretty good right now and, and, and so on and so forth, but I still want to find some protection for my portfolio, where can I find it? Typically, I would find it in bonds. But if rates are going to go up, the value of my bonds is going to go down. And that's important because even if I'm in supposedly safer bonds, short-term bonds, if the value of those bonds goes down, there really isn't enough income coming from those bonds uh, to do me any good whatsoever. So are bonds my protection anymore? If not, what is? Yeah, you have to be really careful as a fixed income investor today, because even short duration, it's really a misnamed strategy, in my opinion. It's still long duration. It's just less long. So investors have to be very careful to make sure that they are diversified, that they have um, a a diverse portfolio, especially in fixed income. 
um, many investors have been going into fixed income instruments that have a lot of credit risk too. So you have to be really careful because if you own a lot of um, equities and then you also own corporate bonds with a similar credit spread risk, you really have the same thing. Yeah. So it's a, it's a challenging time. Investors have to be focused on diversification and looking at actually what they own. All right, let's uh, we have to leave it there for time. But, uh, Chris, I want to I just want to point out for the record that you're avoiding utilities, reducing uh, energy. You like semiconductors and financials, right? Quick checklist. That's correct. correct. Thanks, mm-hmm. folks. Nancy Davis, Chris Zaccarelli. Appreciate your time today. And now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Tyler. Hello, everyone. President Biden and members of Congress paying tribute to a fallen Capitol Hill police officer killed in the line of duty. Officer William Evans, an 18-year veteran of the force, will lie in the Capitol Rotunda today. Just the fourth Capitol Police officer to receive the honor. In Atlanta, county officials are laying out a possible challenge to Georgia's new election law that one county commissioner describes as focused on reducing minority voting. Fulton County would be the first government to sue Georgia over the new law. And see how CEOs and religious leaders are discussing new responses to the election law tonight on the News with Shepard Smith. And the Japanese government says that it will release more than a million tons of treated water from the Fukushima nuclear power plant into the sea. The decision comes 10 years after the plant was crippled by an earthquake and tsunami. The first release would come in about two years. We're now up to date. Tyler, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you very much. And coming up, an extraordinarily rare asset. That's what one analyst says about Coinbase ahead of tomorrow's listing. This is uh, the company initiates uh, that broker at a company initiates the Coinbase with a buy. We will speak with her next. Plus, as more Americans sign up to get their vaccine, a new question is popping up among privacy critics. Who owns your vaccine data? That story ahead. The exchange is back after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. everybody. Bitcoin sitting near an all-time high, crossing the 63,000 mark, the move coming ahead of the highly anticipated public debut of Coinbase tomorrow. Leslie Picker joins us now with more on the crypto exchange's debut. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Tyler. So tomorrow's debut of a crypto exchange is also a big deal for a more traditional old school equity exchange. Yes, Coinbase is Nasdaq stock market's first large direct listing. All the others in recent years went with the New York Stock Exchange, going back to Spotify in 2018, Palantir last year, and Roblox last month. Now, direct listings have become an increasingly popular way of going public. As opposed to the traditional IPO process, direct listings so far 
far haven't involved capital raising, meaning companies won't sell shares at a set IPO price. Instead, with a direct listing, the price is determined by supply and demand in the market. For NASDAQ, the stakes are high. It's important for the exchange to show that it can flawlessly execute direct listings just like its competitor, the NYSE, has. NASDAQ collects the same type of listing fees regardless of debut type, so it needs to go where the money is. And increasingly, that's more toward the direct listing side. Also, Coinbase could be the largest ever direct listing by market cap. Based on recent trading in the private markets, Coinbase has been valued around $90 billion. Palantir and Slack, in contrast, were about a quarter of the size. Spotify was a third and Roblox just half when it debuted. Layer on top of all of that, the crypto fan base, which is expected to turn out in a big way. Earlier today, actually, Coinbase IPO was trending on Twitter. Of course, that could impact the volume of shares traded tomorrow. If all goes as planned, though, the upside is big. The Coinbase deal could help the Nasdaq break into future direct listings. Tyler. All right. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Leslie Picker. Uh, In its global fund manager survey out today, Bank of America asked its respondents if Bitcoin was in a bubble. And an overwhelming majority, 74 percent, answered yes. And there lies the rub, perhaps, for Coinbase. Its financial performance is largely subject to Bitcoin's inherent volatility. But for Moffat Nathanson, the opportunity outweighs the risk. The firm initiating Coinbase ahead of its public debut with a buy rating and a $600 price target. Warning, however, this is not for the faint of heart. With us now is the author of that note, Lisa Ellis, partner and senior equity analyst at Moffat Nathanson. Uh, I was going to begin, just bottom line me here, do you like this this company as a buy or not? But we've given away that. You like it. Why? (laughs) Yeah, we like it. I mean, number one reason to own Coinbase is the scarcity value. If you're a believer in the long-term potential of cryptocurrencies, which we are, and that doesn't just have to be Bitcoin, that can be stable coins, uh, NFTs, Ethereum, right? They're an agnostic way to play the future of cryptocurrency, and they will be the only large cap US listed company with that type of exposure. In our view, this is a must-own stock for most growth or tech-oriented portfolios. Are we going to know uh, overnight at what price this stock may open tomorrow in the sense of the way we would would get with a traditional IPO, uh, a reference price for the morning? Are we going to know that? And if we don't know that, how can you say you think it's going to sell at 600 and put a price target (laughs) on it? Well, in true cryptocurrency style, there is a crypto token uh, trading already in the crypto markets uh, that is indicating uh, where the the price of of Coinbase may open. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's bumping around, but it does look like it could be easily up in the upper 500s, maybe even crossing 600. So we'll see. You never know with a direct listing you know, that's the uncertainty is exactly what the market reaction is going to be at open. But, um, you know, but we but feel pretty confident in, the, you know, that we're going to see something like that. It's all cryptic, right? It's all cryptic. Uh, let's go to the to the questions that you raise in your report on on Coinbase. And that is this. You see a tremendous amount of revenue variability year to year. Why is that? And then how can you tell someone to go out and buy the stock when the, when the stock may be so subject to really drastic revenue swings. Yeah, I mean, realistically, look, we're not in the business of trying to predict what's going to happen with uh, Bitcoin and, uh, and, other, and, and the price of other cryptocurrencies. But historically, 
uh, cryptocurrencies have gone through these cycles, typically in about three years cycles, where on a trailing 12 month basis, they've gone peak to trough swings of over 30% in value. Um, so out of prudence, um, we think it's, you know, it may, it, it's a conservative thing to do is to assume we're going to continue to see somewhat of that type of activity going forward. So yes, we are actually forecasting, and this is the whole, not a, you have to, no faint of heart here, that Coinbase's 2022 revenues may very well be below or meaningfully below, as much as 30% below what they are in 2021, just assuming that we go through another one of these so-called crypto winters, um, mm. where we see a retrenching and a period of regrouping before, you know, before growth again. So look, there's different ways to play the stock. You can play it on a short-term time horizon and try to anticipate the movements in the underlying cryptos, or you can sit back and take a longer-term view. And as long as you have a two to three or more year time horizon, you know, then you're just smoothing through these uh, peaks and yeah. valleys. Well, you're really giving me an education here, and I'm enjoying this Im- immensely. I, I, if I'm reading you right, you're, you say, among other things, this company kind of has a, a first mover or a primary position in this marketplace. That's an advantage for it. So if, if you had to boil down who this stock is for, who would that be? You kind of reference that. I just want to tie it off. Yeah, this is a stock ideally for long-term growth-oriented investors, tech funds, growth funds with a three to five-year time horizon. For that type of investor, in my view, this is an absolute must own. Cryptocurrencies are the most disruptive new technology we've seen in decades. It really is akin to the Internet in its level of disruption. And Coinbase is crypto agnostic. So you're not having to pick a single crypto. You're just believing in the technology overall. And they are undisputedly the market leader amongst Western players And now you have an opportunity to buy them. In our view, if you've got that type of time horizon and you can stomach and and kind of gut your way through potential peaks and valleys, you know, that's the you know, then this is an absolute must own. I asked you a question. You gave me a damn near perfect answer. Lisa, that doesn't happen often. Congratulations. You get guest of the day, Lisa. Lisa Ellis. (laughs) Thanks. We thank you. All righty. Coming up, Google searches for when will the housing market crash? Those searches are spiking. So is the crowd onto something? We'll discuss that next. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Google searches can lift the veil on what people are actually thinking. Well, on the housing front, it seems they're thinking we're in a bubble. Diana Olick joins us now with more. Hi, Di. Hi, Ty. Yeah, if you needed any more proof that the market is red hot, the Google search, when is the housing market going to crash, spiked 2,450% in the past month. Why is the market so hot? Searches doubled in just a week last week. And how much over asking price should I offer on a home in 2021? Jumped 350%. 
So is the housing market in a bubble? Well, prices in February were up just over 10 percent year over year, according to CoreLogic. That is the largest annual jump since 2006 because demand is strong and there is record low supply. 42 percent of homes this month are selling for above asking price, according to Redfin. Hence the Google search on overpaying. CoreLogic's chief economist, Frank Nothap, told me, I have to admit, I'm worried when I hear that, because that means it's an auction market. But mortgage rates are now rising, and mortgage applications to buy a home are falling, causing Redfin's chief economist, Daryl Fairweather, to say that whether or not it's runaway home price speculation or a housing bubble, she doesn't think so. Now, Nothap said he expects to see annual home price gains nationally cool to the 3% range. But all real estate is local, and some markets, especially the hottest ones, now could see prices fall slightly. Many of those are in the West, like Idaho, Washington State, and Arizona, where Californians have flocked during the recent exodus. Tyler? Diana, thank you very much. The real estate firm Coldwell Banker launched a home seller survey in response to this red-hot spring market, and the findings confirm that the market is running at unprecedented levels. In fact, according to Coldwell Banker, 38% of homeowners are concerned about the U.S. economy tanking and creating a situation where they are not able to sell or buy a home as planned. Joining us now is Ryan Gorman, president and CEO of Coldwell Banker. Mr. Gorman, welcome. Good to have you with us. Well, thanks for having me, Tyler. Appreciate you know, in this survey, one of the things that leapt off the page to me is that one in five homeowners say they plan to sell their current home in the next 12 months. And it's even more likely among younger homeowners, two out of five between the ages of 18 and 34 say they want to sell. What's driving that desire to sell and where are they going? Well, the good news is the biggest drivers are organic. So I know there's a lot of concern about potential speculation out there, but that's really not what's happening in the market today. So the biggest drivers right now and behind that number are approximately 40 percent are upsizing the most classic reason why people are looking to move. About 30% are seeing an increase in value in their home. So they're saying, well, maybe I want to monetize that value, perhaps move forward in my retirement plans. And then you still have about 30% that are saying, if I'm able to work remotely, at least part of the time, maybe all the time, then perhaps I want to live somewhere differently than where I live today, maybe even somewhere a little more affordable. So while home prices are increasing, affordability is a relative term, and we're seeing some people take advantage of that. So the, the, the big worry in the, in the home market, the thing that Diana schools me on every single time she's on, is the dearth of inventory. If 20% of Americans are going to put their house on the market in the next year, what does that do to inventory? And then what does that imply for prices? Well, I wish 20% of Americans would actually put their homes on the market this coming year, but 20% are contemplating it. There are several reasons why they may not. Some of it is fear of COVID, which is abating as vaccines come through. And some of it is a concern about having the inventory in their destination market. So we're seeing inventory build just a little bit now, but we're still well below where we need to be. With price increases, you're seeing folks realize their current home is worth more than they thought. That pulls inventory into the market. Consumer confidence seems relatively strong, could get stronger. The builders then put more inventory in the market. As that inventory builds, we start to get to a, an overall healthier place. And right now we've got about 20% that are contemplating it. It only requires about 1% or 2% of those to put it on the market to really 
take the edge out of the inventory disconnect we have today. Yeah, so it's a small I, – I take your point. I think it's a very important one to note there, and that is the idea that contemplating doing something. Well, maybe I'll move to uh, Florida. Maybe I'll do yes. – and doing it are two different things, and there are some, there's some hesitance about that. The other thing that was very interesting to me in the survey was the idea that of those who are contemplating moving, I think it was 30-some-odd percent say they plan to stay in the same general area. But – 57% say they want to move to an entirely different part uh, of the country, basically. That has to be the work-from-home influence, number one, and probably high taxes in some markets, number two. Absolutely. I think the three main factors, you hit on two of the three. So I think weather is a trend that we've seen in the country for a long time, folks looking for a little bit better weather markets. The tax flight, we're seeing following that weather flights, so we're seeing a little bit of that. But the remote work is the biggest overall shift that we've seen that uh, may be somewhat permanent. So not necessarily that folks are going to be permanently working remotely, but they're going to have greater flexibility, which maybe allows them to make the decision to move forward in their plans, to perhaps move from New Jersey to North Carolina or the reverse. We've seen that, too. And go back maybe once a week out of, uh, you know, down to the city or maybe once one week out of a month back up to the former headquarters, that flexibility means they can move forward in their plans like never before. So we haven't tested exactly that metric before, but I'm willing to bet that's a record. The majority of people contemplating selling, being able to take real full advantage of this remote work. A lot of people move to Tennessee these days. Tennessee, ladies and gentlemen. All right. A big driver from the Midwest. All right. Yeah, that's right. Ryan, thanks. Ryan Gorman, Coldwell Banker. And coming up, your cell phone and email addresses are just two of the things you're being asked to share when you sign up for a vaccine. But what actually happens with that data? Could you be worried? That's next. Change everybody. We've talked a lot about vaccine safety today, but it's the safety of your personal data when you sign up for a vaccine that also has some people worried. Eamon Javers joins us now with the latest on this. Eamon? Yeah, hey, Tyler. The critics are saying that the drugstore chains are gathering too much information on customers with too few rules about what they can do with all that data once they collect it. But even some of those critics are deciding they'd rather get their shot than keep their privacy. I did get out of pharmacy and I did sign up for an online account as part of that. (laughs) I mean, I I felt a little uncomfortable um, because I, you know, to me, getting the vaccine was important enough that I went ahead and did it. Now, a group of lawmakers on Capitol Hill wants to change that trade off, and they've introduced a bill that would block companies from using the data they're collecting for anything other than public health and also mandate that they have strong data protections to protect people from the threat of hackers. It's important that there is a strong public health response, but someone shouldn't be taking advantage of that. Now, for their part, the big drug chains say they're just taking all the appropriate precautions here. In a statement, CVS told us it asks patients for demographic information, including race, age, ethnicity and location, as part of its reporting requirements to the CDC. And the company said all information collected during the vaccination registration process is considered protected health information under HIPAA. And CVS said it does not require patients to create a CVS.com account in order to get a vaccine. But over at Walgreens, which does require that, they told us in part that it helps in reducing lines and in-store wait times that can be a byproduct of 
collecting this information at the pharmacy counter. So, uh, Tyler, look, this is a trade-off that millions of us are making every day. CVS told us that as of last week, it has administered more than 10 million COVID vaccine doses. So that's a lot of people in a lot of drugstores around the country. Run me through once again what Walgreens requires me to do if I want to get a vaccine. I have to sign up for a, a Walgreens uh, bonus plan. You have to sign or up for the Walgreens account. I actually did that. Yeah. And so you become a Walgreens member. Uh, and then as a result, I'm, I'm actually myself getting a lot of emails now from Walgreens, uh, which I'd never been a customer of before. So you can see the business value of that mm-hmm. for an entity uh, that's looking for new customers around the country. Now, suddenly millions of people are flooding into their system. And the question the critics raise is, you know, what's the appropriate use of all that information? Should they and be making money off of that? Uh, and, and should they be sharing it with anybody they're doing business with? We can imagine. But what's the harm here? Bottom line me. Yeah, look, the critics are saying the harm is that this could contribute to this overall vaccine hesitancy that we've seen that we've been seeing. If people mm. are feeling, you know what, I don't feel safe with my personal data. I don't want these drug chains to have that. Maybe that's another hurdle to them getting the vaccine in the first place. The critics say that's the problem here. The chains say, hey, wait, we're following all the rules and procedures and all the laws that are in place to protect this information. Eamon, always great to see you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ty. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.